0: So welcome to Tripod, our travel retail themed video podcast series in association with the SIVA Group. I'm Martin Moody.
1: I'm Roger Jackson.
0: Hi, Roger. Lovely to be back with you. And we've got a great guest on the program today. As you'll note, Roger, I'm uh, now wearing the new Tripod baseball cap. Yours, I hate to say it's still in the mail. Uh, but what do you make of it? I think it's, uh, it's proving that Tripod is here to stay.
1: I know, I was going to say, we've got our own merchandise line now. So, yeah, it's uh, it's amazing.
0: Yeah. Now, what do you make of the state of the nation with regard to travel retail, Roger? I have just come back from something like 90 days on the road through 11 countries and 14 airports. I've seen a lot. I've seen the good and I've seen the bad. And occasionally in Europe, uh, I've seen the ugly. But overall... I think from a pure travel retail point of view, I'm, I'm very, very optimistic. Things seem to be uh, bouncing back strongly in most locations. What's your take on it?
1: I think, um, I've, like yourself, I've traveled quite a bit within the Middle East and within Europe over the last 12 weeks. And I think visually, optically, if you want to say, I've seen business back. Whether it's been Dufresne stores, Dubai GT3 stores, Qatar GT3, um, Heinemann, you know, I've seen a good mixture of the stores like and you can see shoppers are back and you see their spending as well. So just visually. Then when you uh, couple that with Dufri's results three days ago, yeah. I think if you take out Asia out of their results, which I think we all accept, uh, Asia is slower. Um, than the rest of the world because obviously of lockdowns and, you know, open uh, to travel is just not there. And hopefully that'll come soon. I know as you've experienced yourself, Hong Kong relaxed, uh, which I'm sure is going to help, but still, you know, seven days, even though three of those can be at home is still a, is still a challenge. But when those relax even further, I'm sure we're going to see Asia come back as soon as those uh, rules relax so I think if you strip out Asia out of Do Free's results, and I'm using Do Free because they're the largest duty-free retailer we have, um, and also the news is only three days old. I think when you strip that out, they're nearly back. You know, they're nearly at 90% of revenue for the area of businesses excluding Asia. I think it's between 85 and 90% for all of those locations. And I think when you look at that, that is really good news because has got a very uh, wide geography. Um, so excluding Asia, as I've already said, I think we're in a really good place to say business is back. You know, most of the contacts I have in the Middle East and Europe outside of Dufry are saying the exact same thing. In fact, in the Middle East, most of them are back. Um, I saw the uh, column reported from Dubai GT3 a few weeks ago himself, they were expecting to hit between 1.6 and 1.7 billion dollars versus 2 billion or just over 2 billion in 2019 so another one of our big big retailers also showing that they're not far off being about that sort of 85 to 90 percent so i think as long as you know we don't have any further um, issues with covid around variants etc i think we're looking good for a return and actually I think most people are seeing that this year, which versus where we'd forecasted this, I don't think there was many people saying uh, 2023, 2024 at the earliest, and it looks like actually 2022 could virtually be there for most retailers. So, Martin, from my perspective, uh, very positive. Um, there are some challenges on the way, uh, as in when does Asia come back? We have huge availability challenges out of stocks in store because as we know there's a, a global crisis on raw materials freight we have recession looming in most countries and big inflation so we have got some hurdles to come but it's in terms of getting people back into airports and back shopping for our industry i think we're looking really positive
0: yeah absolutely and just to pick up on on asia something very significant happening here today it's the 12th of august is where we're recording this and The 12th of August is the day that China Duty Free Group's parent company, uh, China Tourism Group, Duty Free Corp Limited, uh, kickstarted their secondary listing on the stock exchange of Hong Kong. So this is a red-letter day for CDFG. Um, And the fact that they have gone ahead with that, Roger, having been thwarted in their ambition to have a secondary listing last December because conditions were inclement to say the least. The fact that they've chosen now uh, is another sign of confidence in the market. Now perversely on a short-term basis, Hainan shut down as we speak uh, because of an outbreak in Sanya. But put that to one side and the Chinese will deal with that quickly. This secondary listing, the fact that it's up and running that tells you that China duty free group is confident of raising very significant money, something like $2.2 billion, um, and that they have plans of what to do with it, more importantly. So a good sign that uh, that the industry, number one, is going up to a whole new level going forward. So we'll watch that space pretty carefully, Roger, and, um, and, and see what happens. But big, big moments in the travel retail industry here in Hong Kong today. So, Roger, we've got... A very interesting guest from uh, um, an industry uh, that you know so well, the wines and spirits industry, an independent family winemaker with a quite extraordinary story. Shall we bring him in? Yeah, let's do it. So Tripod's special guest this week is Stephen Cronk, a man who sold his London house to pursue an unlikely, well, make that crazy dream of creating a wine brand in the south of France. Out the window went the constraints, the frustrations, but also the security of corporate life in England. Goodbye, London suburbia. Hello, the glorious landscapes and sunshine of Provence in France. Now, if that all sounds like an episode from TV series, A Place in the Sun, in which Brits swap the gloom of home for the color, the charm and the cuisine of Mediterranean Europe, I suppose it it really does sound like one. But here's the thing. This wasn't just a fanciful foreign sojourn. From the very start, Stephen and his wife Jeannie determined to create a high quality, successful wine brand, easier said than done. They called it Mirabeau en Provence. And what has happened? I think in the intervening 13 years, 1313, one, is one of the most extraordinary entrepreneurial tales you will ever hear. And today, Mirabeau is a stunning success story. It's the best-selling Provence Rosé Rose brand in the UK. It's available in over 15 countries. In Australia and the Netherlands, it also ranks among the top three in its categories. And it's now pushing very hard, I'm glad to say, into travel retail. And the Mirabeau story is no longer solely about Rosé wine. Just over two years ago, the company launched a gin under the Mirabeau name, a serious dry rose gin, that is not the sweet pink gin. And already it's seriously successful too, having been rolled out across more than 50 markets. Ladies and gentlemen, what a story this is. Stephen Cronk, welcome to Tripod.
2: Well, wow, thank you very much for having me. And what an introduction. I hardly recognize that as being me, but uh, thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to be here.
0: Uh, great to have you with us. Well, Stephen, we're going to wind back to the very beginning before before Mirabeau was even conceived, and I'm going to pass over to my younger and much better looking co-host, Roger Jack. <laughs> Hi,
1: Stephen. Great to meet you. Hi, Roger. We always go back to the beginning. So I guess from uh, what we'd really like to know is early days, where you grew up, education, what sort of influenced you in those really early days?
2: Yeah, so I guess everyone thinks they're, in, they're an upbringing is rather mundane and banal, but mine, yeah, I, I, I grew up in, in South London. Um, I went to, to school in, in West Sussex. I was sent away to a typical British boarding school, uh, which is actually a beautiful place, and I've just sent my son there because he's, un, he's, he's uneducatable in France, unfortunately. Um, but uh, yeah, so grew up uh, in, in, in South, South London, um, went to what was Brighton Poly, now the University of Brighton which sounds much better um, and uh, yeah it, I, it's a, it was a regular middle class upbringing in the south of, in, in the, in the south, of London, south London.
1: And I guess what started your love of wine where did that start and I guess where did Rosé feature on that discovery?
2: Yeah, it's interesting because my family weren't wine drinkers um i i actually discovered wine in my gap year um i after school i went to uh i went to australia as a lot of kids did uh, in those days and um on the way back from australia well I, i i hitchhiked from sydney to to adelaide and and went camping around uh the barossa valley and rented a bike because that's all i could afford to do really and I just became captivated by the, the beautiful undulating hills of the, of the Barossa Valley, of the uniformity of the vines. I thought the whole place was so utterly compelling. And then of course the product I also fell in love with as well. Um, and so that's what really made me think, okay, change of direction. Um, Cause I was gonna, gonna go to, um, to study hotel management uh, at Polly and decided to go straight into, into business instead um but knowing and uh, I was very lucky that I knew with such certainty and clarity that I wanted to go into wine so um so came you know did my did my degree excuse me in brighton and um started uh started in the london wine trade as a van driver uh, which is pretty crazy considering my driving skills um and, you know, worked for a very small wine shipper called Michael Morgan Limited. And in fact, John Morgan, the brother of Michael, would later be a huge influence in, in getting me back into the wine trade. Um, yeah, I did my wine exam. So when I passed my highest certificate, they basically <laughs> gave me a business card and said, OK, you can now go in the front door of the restaurants and start selling. That was my sales training. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, off I went in, in the wine trade
1: and then telecoms came how did that come about from obviously falling in love with wine in australia working in wine and then coming over to telecoms which is a bit different
2: yeah so basically um with the arrogance of youth age 24 i thought i could do a better job myself than my my previous employers so i decided to set up my wine company stephen cronk fine wines beautiful name in in southwest london in wandsworth um and by the time i was 30 i had let's put it this way, I'd learned a lot about entrepreneurship and running a business, made, made quite a few mistakes and uh, decided to get out of that and pay up the debts. So at, at that stage, which was 1994, uh, telecoms was booming in the UK. or just really getting going. They broke up the duopoly of BT and Mercurian. Um, and there was a job going whereby they wanted somebody who could sell, who hadn't come from a telecoms background, and I got a job, and um, yeah, so it was very, it was very opportune actually, uh, and very timely that I did that at age thirty um, for for several reasons. I think the the corporate world gave me a, a, a lot of discipline around business, and it really made me help me understand the psychology of of working in the corporate world and the way that people operate and the politics uh, of of the corporate world. Because later on, I was to obviously face into the corporate world with my own wine brand, and I think it really gave me some insights as to um, the pressures on on buyers, um, how decisions are made, the politics, and so on. So, uh, so yeah, I went into telecoms uh, initially, because I, well, to 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 do something else and to pay up the debts, like I said, but actually, I I met my wife or my future wife, as, as she was to become. Um, there Uh, she was in the marketing department and i was the sales guy uh, and she couldn't believe i spent most of my time on the golf course but that's how business was down then um and um yeah and and about what three months after meeting her i proposed to her and uh, she daftly accepted and funnily enough we got married here where i am now in in bavaria um a, a year later and then and then something happens, lots of pivot points when you look back and you realize, wow, that's interesting that that happened. But soon after we, uh, um, we got married, I went hiking in Southwest France with some friends of mine. And uh, we were sort of in the foothills of the Pyrenees and we were walking around a, a vineyard and I was ogling this vineyard. I really missed the wine trade. I, and, and I just love being in close proximity to vineyards. And I was walking around this vineyard with his two friends of mine. And uh, they were very nosy friends. In fact, they, they were from Hong Kong. Um, uh, he was a professor at Hong Kong University. And, and he's a very nosy guy. And he said, Stephen, so how much have you just paid for your London house? And I told him. And he thought that was a ridiculous amount of money. But he said, this vineyard that you've been ogling at for the last two hours is on the market for the same price as your London house. I thought, wow. Okay, so in theory, if I could pay off my mortgage, I could buy this vineyard or a vineyard like that. And that was the that was the trigger that made me think, okay, I'm in telecoms. I missed the wine trade. Telecoms is better paid than the wine trade. If I could pay off the mortgage and sell the house and buy a vineyard, then that's what I want to do. So yeah. I came back. Came back with the idea. It was met, met with stone cold silence um, and disbelief. But because uh, she, this wasn't going to happen overnight and I have lots of ideas, uh, she, Je- Jeannie, my wife, sort of yeah, let me have it and then started having a family. And, and it seemed to dissipate to some extent. But I kept that, the idea kept burning away. And, and uh, I, I have this very important thing, which is I, I call socializing an idea. So as a, an entrepreneur, if you have an idea, you have to, Put it up uh, in front of friends or or people you know who'll challenge it, and so I had lots of time to do that, and it was certainly challenged. Um, and there are lots of uh, uh, there are lots of horror stories about people who thought they could go and you know have a vineyard and and so on. And there's a very famous expression that I'm sure you both know, which is you can make a small fortune in the wine trade if you start with a large one. Mm-hmm. And 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 so there are lots of warning signs. Um, and so, but it, it took me ten years, and and we always wanted to have uh have a family. So, uh, we got the the, the children uh, the children born, and and the idea was still there. And that and that's where yeah, that's that's where it came from. And eventually, I paid off the mortgage, and we sold the house and, and moved to the south of France.
0: Wow, what a, what a what a story, and, and and what a brave couple you were! Because you know we talked about the constraints and frustrations of corporate life, don't we? But <laughs> also bring other things, other important things, especially when you're parents, comfort uh, and security, and pensions, and all that kind of nice stuff. But you did it. This this idea it simmered away for for a decade, and then you headed down there. Now for people. Who are watching this program, Stephen? Who will know the brand and see it as a the very real success it is today? Um, they won't know about those early formative days. They they don't tend to because you don't tell people they're the hard yards, as I always describe them, of, of of creating a business from scratch. And it's not easy. It's not easy um, creating a business, keeping it going, sustaining it let alone making it into a big success tell us about those those early formative days Yeah, you know, the, the initial vision and how you set about doing it and what were the biggest challenges that you faced
2: yeah it, it was tough and, and you're right i mean people uh, you know people often look at the success later on and assume it was fairly straightforward and, and it wasn't and, and also you know this was a uh, high-risk venture, uh, um, I, I, as you know. You know we, I, we'd never done this before. We didn't speak any French. We'd never made wine. We'd never built a brand. And, and so I mean, that, that's why I, I'm pleased um, that we had managed to pay off the mortgage, because that was my funding. I, would, I think nobody would have backed me um, with that track record or lack of track record in, in, in that area. Um, and the, the, I felt a huge... Pressure, the huge weight on my shoulders to deliver. So my wife, you know, I basically we had uh, when we moved into our last house in London. It was the best house. It was in Teddington, a leafy suburb southwest of London, close to a beautiful park, close to the train station. And when we moved in, we we uh, we said we never need to move house again. We can stay here and, until we retire. And and then we opened a bottle of rose wine. To celebrate after moving into our new house, and it's like, oh, yeah, that hasn't gone away, has it? <laughs> uh, and, and and sure enough, three years later, we'd sold the house and and uh, gone gone to Provence um, with this with this idea, and it was it was really tough because you know we'd taken our children out of school, we'd moved away from our network, um, you know, from our culture, from our language, um, and uh, yeah, I, I had this idea that um, I could once I'm there, because also you can't, you can't actually understand what's involved until you move out there. You have to make that commitment. And actually my wife said, why don't we just rent? The- no, I said, sorry, why don't we just rent the house out in case this all goes horribly wrong? And she said, no, 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 there ain't, ain't no going back. This is gonna work. It has to work. Um, and so she took a huge leap of faith as well. She had big trust in, in me, but I felt that pressure massively on my shoulders. Um, and in fact, we got helped out. We met Sir so John Morgan, my, my head of sales, when my first job at Michael Morgan limited, I mentioned earlier, he introduced me to an American guy called Tom Bovey, who had just sold Chateau Miraval to, to Brad and Angelina. And he really helped set us up. So he introduced me to his winemaker. Um, but also he helped us in the early days, um, establish ourselves in France. Cause initially we thought we'd move from from London to Aix-en-Provence, because it's a, it's a city and we can put our children into international schools because they didn't speak any French. And then I met this guy, Tom Beve, he said, you're doing it all wrong. Yeah, you know, if you go to, if you send your children to international schools, they'll gravitate towards the other English speaking children, you'll gravitate towards their parents, that those, those parents will then move on because they've only been there for two or three years and, and uh, be rotating around the world. And you, you won't settle in, you won't integrate. Find a French village with a French school, throw them in the deep end. Um, and he helped us find the school and he, he really settled us in. And actually he said, your children, it's, it's, it's tough love um, and your children might cry for the first year but they'll thank you for the rest of their lives. And I thought, okay, that sounds pretty tough, but actually that's what we did. And it did take a while for them to settle in, but they they were seven, my eldest two were seven and eight at the time, Um, but they settled into school um, within six months. Uh, My wife was doing all the homework with them in French. And I basically started to search out the best terroir in, in Provence. So I, I knew that uh, I, I knew that I'd have to work as a négociant, in other words, working with growers around the region. And I thought, you know, let's go and find out the best growers in the best terroir and start to pull together our our, our initial blends. Um, and that's that's how we got going.
0: And when was the first vintage, Stephen?
2: The first vintage was two thousand um, and ten, and I took it to uh, I, I took it into Waitrose at Christmas two thousand and ten. Um, My winemaker, um, uh, Angela Muir, who's a British master of wine, who who was an amazing, amazing influence in our lives, Um, she basically, I started doing films with her, and and she said, who's going to make your wine, Stephen? And I said, well, I'm going to give it a go, because initially it's blending, you know, working with other growers, and she said, Stephen, you know nothing about wine, really, do you, darling? Why don't I come and help you? I, I said, Angela, I can't afford you. I knew her day rate, better. there's no way I could afford it. She said, I'm not asking to be paid, just pay my flights and I'll come and sort you out. And that was amazing. And and that's what I think people along this journey, I've noticed because they have seen how nuts this whole venture is and how committed we are, we were and we still are to making this work. There was, people have been so helpful. And you know, people will go out of their way if they see that you're sincere, it's thought through and you're committed to making this work. And she became our, yeah, she, our, our winemaker, if you like, for the first few years. And, uh, yeah, I took the wine into Waitrose in, in Christmas 2010. And uh, the buyer there, who's now a friend, uh, but at the time he was quite scary. Because um, because buyers, any buyers watching this, you've got no idea the influence you have on the, the businesses like, like ours. Um, and, yeah, he said, Stephen, okay, I've got hundreds of other provence brands who want me to take them why should i take your brand over anybody else's and i just read a book on social media marketing and i thought i knew my stuff and i said because nick i'll make sure this wine flies off your shelves uh, i'll be using social media to build my brand and uh, you, you know that will it'll, it'll really work for you and he said stephen i don't really believe you but i'll give you a go and I'll list you in 60 of my 300 stores. And I'm going to put you on the bottom shelf, though. Bottom shelf, because that's where I normally exit brands. And if your social media marketing really works, then you know, people, people will discover it, won't they? I said, yeah. Yeah, I hope so. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's what happened. So we started on the bottom shelf. And um, now I think we have six SKUs in Waitrose. We're in all the stores. And we've been working with them for, for 12 vintages now.
0: Can you remember your feeling the day you walked out of that office? Did you leap in the yeah. air 10 foot high?
2: Yeah, I did. I did. I, I I I managed to, I mean, literally, I mean not not quite 10 foot, but I managed to contain myself while I was walking out of reception, you know, mm-hmm. handed in my handed in my thingy collar thing and and, and sign myself out. <laughs> walked out. And just Rah! I, mean, I, I was hoping there's no closer like a TV, and they would think that I was some demented loon. But uh, yeah, it was. I was in such a high. It was, uh, and it was. It was a, a, an amazing break. And you know, waitros. You know, they all they talk about working with small growers, small producers, and, and they really do. And they you know the influence they had on our lives as a result of that decision uh, uh, was was immense. Uh, but it but it, but I kept to my word. And, you know, I knew I had to make my wine perform in the way that I know I had to make my gin perform. You know, I can't just make a great product and have it sit on the shelf and not sell. You know, and I always believe that sort of the the marketing sells the first bottle and the liquid sells the second bottle. You know, a lot of people talk about that. But it's true, you know, I had to act like a big brand, even though I was a tiny, tiny brand.
0: Yeah, interesting lesson. And so there you were, um, a really uh, breakthrough order. We roll forward to the scenario that I mentioned at the start. You're now a very big international brand. What happened in the middle? Try and I mean that's a it's a 13-year journey, and I'm going to ask you to sum it up in a couple of minutes, Stephen. But how did you go to being this really, I would say, blockbuster success? Made all the rem- more remarkable, I must say, by the fact that you were down in the south of France as an Englishman surrounded by French winemakers. So I'd also like you to dwell on that. How much of a challenge was that?
2: Yeah, I think from, on that side, to deal with that bit first, um, I, I think that the my, the producers I was working with just thought I was amusing and it would never work. Uh, and then I kept coming back and making more wine each year and they just said, okay, this is working. Um, and so those relationships I have with the growers is really important because um you know that i i'm you know, especially now with, with, with some of the big players like lvmh and uh moving into the area those relationships are, are going to remain important um so i so i think that they they amuse themselves by dealing with me and uh and now it's working but no i i think it was really useful that i was a salesman um and I think a lot of people certainly i felt when i started selling telecoms uh, That that it was a bit of a dirty word, and and you know what what skills you need to sell. But my gosh, if you can't sell, then you you haven't got a business. And we, you know, as we all know, we're all selling all the time. You know, even if we're not in sales, you know, if you're an accountant, you get a job interview, you're selling yourself. So I had to basically, you know, once I got into waitros, I knew that I had to go and get other markets. So we started just picking, I picked it up the phone. And that was another good discipline that I'd learned from the early days is cold calling. You know, it's something that most of us, uh, we talk about in, in the days when you had to pick up a phone, uh, you know, a dialy dialy di- 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 phone. Uh, the phone was really heavy. It's amazing how... How clean your study would get when you knew you had to make a phone call you didn't want to make, and suddenly you find all those things you find, you're suddenly hovering like a loon because you don't want to make those phone calls. But I, I that so that that background in sales was really useful, and uh, and so I yeah I started to find other waiters lookalikes in different in different countries and say look waiters are taking it, it's working there. How about you take my wine and uh, I'll make it work for you as well. But I think that the, the social media angle was really good at that time because this was obviously in the early. 2010 2011 uh you know social media instagram didn't exist social media was really just beginning but i was really keen to use that to try and build a following and uh, you know people believe that and they like the story that you know a small brand could have like like i said earlier act a bit like a big brand and actually get the name out of there so they, they believed it so yeah, you know, eventually we were, you know, three or four countries. When I started collecting countries, I thought, "Wow, we've got 20 countries now." And right now we're in close to 60 countries around the world. Um, and it's it's just been a, a huge, a huge amount of fun. And you know, I love the fact that people leave me, and they, they trust the liquid. And at the end of the day, um, you know, it's all about the liquid, and you know that's what that's what people are buying.
1: Stephen, uh, two more from me, I guess, pretty quick ones, really. But you you mentioned quite a few mentors, influencers, friends. So who would you say were um, the key ones? Um, and also, secondly, I guess one that um, is just coming off the cuff from hearing <laughs> you. Were there any moments where you thought this isn't going to work? You'd already gone in, you'd sold your house, all your money and your family's money was invested. Was there a couple of points where you are? like, this isn't going to work, or we're going to have to change. And I guess I'm asking that as a as a business owner myself.
2: <laughs> yes, there are there are lots of points uh, where we thought I, I thought this has all gone wrong, and and there still are moments where where things don't go right. Uh, and you, you know, we will we will know those moments when you think, "Oh my God, my life is so terrible," and how could I've gotten here, and how do I get out of this? um and i think it was really good that actually we we had sold the house in London we had we had no going back you know we really had to make it work so and i think one one of the characteristics that i think you know, we we don't talk enough about is resilience yeah you know, and that's something that i'm i'm keen to teach my kids and they've seen us my wife my wife's not very involved in the business um and they see how hard we work and they've seen the setbacks and the ability to pick yourself up and dust, dust yourself off, and and do it again, is is really really key. You know, and but this, you know, I think as 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 you both know, you know, entrepreneurship is not for the faint-hearted, and it's not for everybody. Yeah. You know, I think entrepreneurship is over romanticized. Yeah. You know, it really it, it's tough. Yes, it's nice to be your own boss sometimes. But my gosh, it'd be nice to have someone telling me what to do rather than me having to figure it out. And now we've got 30 plus people in the business. You know, I'm their boss and I've got you know all the sort of stresses on me. Um and you know, and you know, I've got a big you know, big paychecks to write out every month. So it's 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 huge pressure and, and really not for everybody, but you know, I love it, it suits me. Um and I, I you know I, I used to have bosses who couldn't stand me working for them because I would think I could do it better. So it, yeah, it's, 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 it was for me, but not for everybody. But I, I had some, when I started this journey, I had three people who really influenced me. Um, one of them is a, an advertising legend in the UK called Sir John Hegarty who I think was one of the founding partners with the Saatchi brothers, but then had Vogelbath and Hegelty. And he was famous for some really classic, uh, iconic ads in the eighties. And he actually, um, he, he actually bought a vineyard, I think about 15 years ago or so in Southwest France. And he actually did a talk to the Institute of Masters of Wine in Bordeaux. Uh, and Jancis Robertson introduced him. And this guy came on stage and was talking to a couple of hundred masters of wine And he really shook them up. And he he said, you guys speak a language which is incomprehensible to anybody outside of your industry. You're talking to yourselves. You need to talk to other people. If you want to make wine an accessible product, say things that people will understand and can relate to and start to entertain. You know, it's not just about education. It's about entertainment. I thought, that's so true. You know, so, and that's one of the lovely things about rosé wine. It's, it's not a snobby wine, it's quite a democratic wine. You know, a lot of, you know, we don't talk about terroir March or grape variety as much in terroir wine. It's about, in Rosé wine, it's about how that wine makes you feel. It's about where it transports you. you know, it's from one of the most beautiful, iconic regions in the world, Provence. So the wine transports you there and you either relive memories of, of your time in Saint-Tropez or um, uh, your your holidays in in, in the sun. Um, and anyway, it's, it's something that's really evocative. So so he really helped me out. And then I read two other books. There was a book uh, I read two books that really helped. Um, and one was called Crush It, by a guy called Gary Vaynerchuk. And if you look up Gary Vaynerchuk, he's one of the noisiest and infuriating people in the world. Uh, but my God, he speaks some sense. And I've actually met I've met Dr John Haggerty and, and and Gary since then because I I wanted to a few years after. I had some success. I wanted to thank them for the influence that they'd given me, and they were like, "Who is this guy?" And, and actually, I because Gary Vaynerchuk is is now got Vaynerchuk, Vayner Media, I think it's called. But he started at a wine store in in Brooklyn. Like it was certainly in, in New York around New York, and he started interviewing celebrities about wine. He became you know just an, an amazing character. Called and he had a um, a, a TV show. I He recorded something every day. Anyway, I went to meet him and when I actually had to to reach out to him initially, I sent him a video and just to say, Gary, here's my family. And we're here and succeeding largely because of you. And he wrote back saying, you've just made me cry. Um, And So uh, so anyway, so he was a a massive influence and he's basically, his book was about how you can turn a passion into a a business using social media. And then the final guy was a huge influence as an American writer, American marketing guru called Seth Godin who wrote a book called Tribes. And he basically said, if you can build a tribe of followers, you don't need to have millions. You just need to have initially a few dozen and a few hundred. And if they really believe in Mirabeau, then they'll introduce it to their friends and they'll remember the story. And and that's how to build a business. So those were the three big influences early on in the Mirabeau journey.
1: And I guess before Martin probably takes you over to uh, our desert island, one last question. Uh, travel retail so where are you at the moment and what are your ambitions it'd be great to understand what your plans are for our amazing industry
2: yeah no it's, uh, travel retail really excites us and I, um, we're, we're, I'm really hoping so we're working trying to get in with do free or like to, uh, to try and get into the if you like the, the our gin into the local hotspots for for us as a, as, a, as a business, so I'd love to get nice duty free, I and mean, that'd be my dream. is a bit of walk through and see my gin there, and then and then also in the UK airports, you know, that would be amazing. So uh, I've got a have taken on a um, a sales guy who is uh, who has got a background in travel retail. So I'm hoping that we can we can uh, work through uh, Matthew Van House contacts and eventually crack the the travel retail market. It's a tough market, and for small brands, it's really really it's a a real challenge. Um, But I'm determined to get in there, and that would be it's amazing, Um, obviously showcase for any 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 brand. And I think it would really. Yeah, I mean, I, because we're also trying to create a product that doesn't really exist right now, uh, Martin, as you introduced it earlier, it a rose so, so it's a rosé gin. So it's a dry gin infused with the herbs of Provence, uh, made of grapes, not from grain, uh, and, and, and and because it's bone dry, it's not a pink gin. So it's a different category, and, and certainly being in travel retail would, would really help.
0: Right. Well, we wish you luck in that, and hopefully, hopefully some of those buyers are tuning in Stephen, and we'll be be, um, impressed by what you're telling them because I think your emphasis on product quality right from the get go um, stands out to me and I've tasted an amount of your product and I I can certainly testify to that quality and the innovation you bring uh, in marketing. Uh, around it social social media marketing in particular which brings me in a nice kind of segue before we go to our desert island I've got to ask you about a famous video you made <laughs> a rather unusual way yeah. of opening a bottle of wine a, a bottle of wine with a cork of course when you don't have that most indispensable of elements the corkscrew so what's the Stephen Cronk Way to get around that situation, and how did you tell the world about it?
2: Well, yeah, that's quite a story, as you, as you know. So, I, I'd start. So, when I started my social media journey, I was doing YouTube videos, I was trying to explain the world of wine to people. You know, the world, why does a sommelier give you the cork, and what are you meant to do with that little bit of wine in the glass, and, and all that kind of stuff? I wanted to really demystify wine. Um, and then I started making some more fun videos, and my 222nd video was how to how to open a bottle of wine if you've forgotten a corkscrew, uh, and because there's a technique you can use where you put the wine bottle, turn it sideways, put it into a shoe, and bang it against the wall. Um, and I tried it, and it really it worked. So I uh, decided to have a shave and 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 uh, and and get the tripod out and, and give it a whirl. And um, I, I edited it into, into 50 seconds because I knew that these things to be shareable had to be short. And uh, yeah, I, I thought if I can get this past 60,000, 60,000 followers was my record for any video. And that was um, because for some reason, um, and because you can tell with Google and it's, who's, read, who's looking at your videos. And it's been one particular video I did on Provence olive oil was being viewed by great Greek males over 65. I thought that's not my target market. <laughs> uh, so uh, I thought, okay, but the 60,000 views, that's my target. And within a week I had a million views and it subsequently had uh, on YouTube, it's had 12 million views, but globally it's had over a hundred million views. And I've even had a, a, a business school did a, did a got their students to do a, a huge piece of work on why it was so popular. And I think that's because it was, a lot of people have been in that situation. We have got a bottle of wine, yeah. We got a bit of a thirst on, but no corkscrew. So um, rather than sort of trying to jab a toothbrush into it or something like that, you know, this is a, a fun way of doing it. And yeah, it just went it, it went viral, and it's been a huge amount of fun.
0: That's fantastic. I've got a confession, Stephen. When I was in hotel quarantine in Hong Kong last week, um, I I bought some wine at Bangkok Airport, and going through this crazy process of, of clearing um, all the medical checks and all the formalities in, in uh, Hong Kong, getting tested, et cetera, at Hong Kong airport, I left all my wine, which was all screw cap, um, in the airport. Very sad, very sad. When, no. I, when, I got, when I got to this dreadful, dreary hotel room, of course I remembered I had a bottle in my suitcase It was a 1997 Amarone from Massey, a really great Italian house, a really great wine. But of course, it has a cork. And in a a hotel quarantine room, there ain't no corkscrews. So I was, or I thought there was not. So I was about to tune into YouTube and be saved by Stephen Cronk when I did I actually did take time out to ring reception. I didn't think they'd bring anything up to the room, <laughs> given the quarantine regulations. But they did bring the corkscrew. I still, I still wonder if I'd opened it with the Stephen Crump technique, if we would have had nineteen ninety-seven Amarone all over the carpet in my in my quarantine room or not. But you seem to do it very,
2: very. <laughs> yeah no it can go it can go horribly wrong and so it's always better off with a corkscrew (laughs) if you can find one
0: all right okay well from there uh roger i'm going to hand over to you and i think it's time to 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 go to our desert island where we take stephen all our all our guests on the program we give them a few creature comforts to while the time over to you roger
1: Stephen, welcome to the Des Island. Uh, so, after the grilling you've just had. Now it's a bit of peace. Um, I guess the first question is, what choice of music would you bring to the island? Can be a one track or an album, your choice.
2: Okay, so I've thought about this, and uh, one of my favourite tracks ever is um, While My Guitar Gently Weeps by The Beatles. But there's a version that I... I, I, I deploy. I, I implore you to 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 look at on on YouTube uh, with Tom Petty, Jeff Lynn, Steve Winwood, and um, Prince, and uh, you know the, the song was written by George Harrison and um, uh, Dil- um, what, what's this the son the son called Danny Danny Harrison is on stage playing the guitar and Prince does uh, a guitar solo in the middle of the song and he plays two tricks uh on and Danny you know who's, who's uh the son of George Harrison uh you just see his face light up when he uh, when Prince does his trick so one of the best guitar solos some lovely trickery from one of the, one of the best artists in the world Prince uh, an amazing song so uh, check it out on YouTube it's brilliant
1: I will do I definitely will do looking forward to it um you've got your music What would you take to read? Can be anything, a book, poem, play, your choice. What what would you have to read on the island?
2: So actually for me, there's a book I've read in the last uh, two years um, called um, From Dirt to Soil uh, by an American farmer called Brown. And it talks about regenerative farming. And that book inspired me to create the Regenerative Viticulture Foundation uh, and it's really explained the importance of soil in dealing with biodiversity and climate change, and the impact that the soil can make on the planet. So uh, it's it's inspired me to understand that science and photosynthesis can store carbon from the air into the soil, and it's, it's it's changed my life. And I'm trying to change the way that people farm vines around the world.
1: Amazing! Looks like I need to look that one up as well. And then- <laughs> yes. And then the next question is probably going to be a little bit difficult for you, but if we, uh, it's got duty free status. This island, of course, um, so you're allowed. <laughs> you're allowed one duty free product. I think for you, we'll give you two because I think one's going to be one of your own uh, products. So perhaps if you could tell us which one of your own products you take, and then if I can push you to pick another one, uh, it can be anything, anything in duty free. But if you could give us two, one of your own and uh, something else, that would be great.
2: So yeah my aim would have to be my gin because uh, you can just, you know when you, when you haven't got any mixes, you can just chill it and squeeze the lemon and you've got a great martini. Uh yeah. it's it's that good you can drink it just neat with uh, without any vermouth. Um and and obviously you, you know, when you do have tonic, you can just have a huge variety of drinks including my favorite Negroni but um apart from my own product obviously because this is not massively about self-promotion uh it's probably be uh, an Oban 14. uh i love i love a whiskey um but it doesn't need to be a hugely fancy one but an oban 14 is my go-to tipple when my wife's not watching
1: <laughs> amazing distillery as well i don't, it's a obviously the azure distillery and i worked at the azure for 13 years but if anybody wants to visit an amazing distillery, uh, Oban and Cardew are my two favourites. So great distillery as well.
2: I've never been there. I really want to go there. I've never even been to a distillery in Scotland, and I think I need to do a tour. So maybe Roger, when you, you next over here,
1: we'll Take we'll, we'll arrange that. We'll, we'll do a we'll do a switch. I'll come uh, visit y- you, and you can uh, we can arrange a visit for you there. Sounds good.
0: Great. All right. On the this- Island, you've been on your own for a while there, Stephen. So we've arranged to fly in some special guests. We're going to put together a, an amazing dinner party for you. I'm pretty sure what wine you'll be serving. But which three guests you <laughs> like from, from they can be from history or they can be living today? What three guests and why? So
2: uh I'm afraid they're all British. Uh and and but uh I, I love Stephen, Stephen Fry. The British comedian, who an actor and a writer, and he's just so ridiculously clever, but incredibly funny and self-effacing as well. Um, another Scott, another British, is the Scott Billy Connolly, who in, you know throughout my the the eighties. I mean, I, I've seen him live, and he just I, I think the two of them would be amazing. Um, but then um, to balance it out a bit, and to get somebody more contemporary and a woman. I'd invite Phoebe Waller-Bridge along. She's the uh, the writer of of, um, of quite a few famous TV shows, including Fleabag, which is just ridiculously hilarious. And I just think that that, that would be a really funny combo. We'd be drinking Mirabeau Rosé and having a laugh and uh, watching the sun go down. and It'd be amazing.
0: It'd be a gr- it'd be a great night. All right, all right. Well, then, Stephen, just to wrap up. Thanks for being uh, such a good sport today, and for, for uh, coming to our desert island. So you deserve a you deserve a treat now. We're going to fly you and your family to anywhere on the world on, on Tripod Airlines, so very very much a budget carrier. <laughs> uh, <super> <laughs> now, where would it be? Where would it be, and Well, as long
2: as I got a free baseball cap as part of my journey, uh, <laughs> and that would help help me protect me from the sun, I think because. I have to say with some sincerity that, that that you know one one of the costs of of being uh, running a business like ours is not having spent much time with the children. And so I love the idea of going somewhere like the Maldives, um, where we can just and, and completely ban all electronic handhelds and, and, and iPods or whatever and iPhones and just spend some quality time Snorkeling, eating, reading, drinking rosé, and and uh, and trying to regain some of that lost time that I that I feel guilty about with my children. But uh, that's what I'd love to do. I've never been to the Maldives. The pictures look amazing, and uh, I think it'd be a, a lovely pace if, if Tripod Air can get us there.
0: Tripod Air will be sending the tickets very soon to you, Stephen. Listen, it's Thank been you. great to chat, uh, Roger. I'm going to let you have the final word. What a what a brilliant story. This has been, Roger, you know the drinks industry better than just about anybody I know, and you've seen success stories and you've seen failures. What do you make of this one? I
1: think um, what Stephen and his family have achieved is just unbelievable. Um, I think if you look at, um, you know, there are lots of instances where people... You know, get liquid, have a brand idea, try and sell it on to somebody, try and get a brand owner interested in day one, but still all on your own from both finance, even the digital marketing, marketing, liquid, bottle, and to use your network like you have, it's just unbelievable. And I think you mentioned something around, you know, people are too quick to, you know, highlight, you know, what entrepreneurs do and who they are. And unfortunately, as we, the three of us both know, it's a very, very lonely place and at times a very, very hard place. And I think one of the challenges is everyone looks at success but doesn't see the 10, 15 years of sleepless nights. So, you know, Stephen, from my perspective, just huge congratulations to you and your family. It's an absolute, you you know, it's amazing hearing you talk about how you achieved this and the building blocks. And I'm sure we've only heard Less than one percent of really what it took, um, but I think the story is fantastic, and I, I hope travel retail is going to be an amazing industry for your brand. I'm actually sure it will be, and I cannot wait to see it on the, on the shelves of all of our amazing outlets. Yeah, thank you so
2: much. You know, you, you make some very good points there, and it's 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 still I'm still excited about this business. I still I love my products. I love this industry, and it's it's uh, it's a huge amount of fun better than telecoms
0: <laughs> all right Stephen well here in Hong Kong it's about 4 30 so I think in about probably a couple of hours from now I will I will um, sample a little bit of your product I've got a bottle uh, sitting there nicely chilling down in, in the fridge and I'm going to watch the sunset in Hong Kong and toast you and your great success story and and your wife's and your family's great success I think It's been tremendous and you've been a terrific guest, Stephen Cronk, take good care. May your business continue to flourish. May we see more Mirabeau, Rosé and Gin in travel retail. Here's to you, take good care.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you, Roger. That was a, a great chat with a very interesting man indeed. And what a story. I thought you summed it up beautifully at the end. In terms of those sleepless nights that entrepreneurs, all entrepreneurs, go through and continue to go through, even when they are successful, but um, what a journey Stephen crump has been on, and what a what a fine tale of of family and independent success it is.
1: Yeah, huge, and I think um, I think most people would have sold out, bought somebody in. The fact that him and his family have persevered and built this amazing brand, um, I think just says everything about Stephen and his family and his wife and the risks they, te- they took. And as I said to Stephen at the end, I really am looking forward to seeing his uh, brands all around travel retail when we, uh, when we all travel in the final quarter of this year. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. All right, Roger. it's been great to be with you as always. We've got another great guest lineup for the the next show. So we'll see everybody back in a little while. But for now, this is Martin Moody saying see you next time.
1: See you next week.